Lord Jesus Christ, our King, the humble and lowly one who came and dwelt among us, I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts today, that we might hear from you. Lord, as we draw near to you, may you draw near to us. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. Please be seated. What do you want? What do you want? In his book, You Are What You Love, Jamie Smith, and this is a great book, by the way. If you haven't read it yet, please do pick it up. In his book, You Are What You Love, Jamie Smith asks, says that this is the fundamental question, that this question is the first, the last, the foundational question when it comes to following Jesus. In the first chapter of John's gospel, two men uh, who were disciples of John the Baptist come up to Jesus, and they say they want to follow him, and Jesus whips around, and he looks at them, and he says, what do you want? He poses this same question in other ways throughout the Gospels. To other disciples, he says, will you come and follow me? To Peter, at the end of John's Gospel, he turns to him and he says, do you love me? Do you love me? So when it comes to discipleship, Jesus doesn't ask, what do you know? Although that is an important question, doctrine matters. But we see him over and over again asking, what do you desire? What is your heart set on? What do you want? The book of Proverbs says this. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything flows from it. And so I'm curious if Jesus, the Son of God, were standing before you, and no one else was around, and he asked you, what do you want? How would you respond to that? What is it that your heart chews on and obsesses over? What do you lose sleep over? What is it that you would want from the Son of God? Well, today we're going to be continuing uh, our, our series through James. We're going to be looking at James's uh, writing, J- uh, chapter 4. And James, here the apostle, the, the brother of Jesus, he picks up this theme of desires again. And what James tells us is that what you want matters. Your desires matter, whether that be for riches or for fame or for sex or for power. What you desire matters. In fact, the desires that you have in your heart manifest themselves in your behavior. And unfortunately, what James is diagnosing here in this moment, what he's looking at here in this moment, is a situation in the early church where this has been playing out rather destructively, we shall say. So we're going to be moving through this passage in in three movements. You'll see I've got it split into the bulletin in in three different paragraphs. Or if you have your Bibles, better yet, uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles, please, uh, to James chapter 4, starting at verse 1. So here James accuses the church of quarrels and fighting with one another. And these words in the original language for quarrels and fighting can also be translated respectively as combat and battle. These are strong words that are meant to sort of jostle us awake. Now, granted, the early church, they were not literally killing one another, although we do have examples in Christian history, unfortunately, of that happening. But here in this situation, we shouldn't shouldn't let his language automatically cause us to sort of click off or steer away from his warlike metaphors. Because James knows what he's doing here. And he's using the language of war to describe the bickering among Christians. 
So for the past several weeks, um, images from Afghanistan has been flooding our screens. Missile strikes, suicide bombings, civilians running for cover. And what James is saying is that these images of war are like the church. We Christians are like an armed, or like forming armed encampments, waiting for the bugle call to send us into battle. And it's not a battle against the devil or the forces of darkness. No, the battle that we're readying ourselves is against one another. Now, James was writing this 2,000 years ago, but he may as well have been writing it yesterday, right? The more time you spend on social media, the, the easier it is to see Christians tearing one another down. Go to the comment section of Christianity Today and you'll see plenty of examples of this. It doesn't matter if it's a 500-year-old theological debate or a response to whatever Dr. Fauci says. We Christians are constantly looking for ways to divide, demonize, and ostracize one another. Now, should Christians passionately discuss doctrines of our faith? Of course. Should Christians engage in frank conversations about how we should be interacting with the culture around us? Yes, of course. But if we can't do those things without maintaining love and peace, then the Apostle James is telling us that there's something else going on within the depths of our hearts. In verse 2, he says, your passions are at war within you. There's something under the surface that you want, but you can't have it. You're at war on the outside because you're at war on the inside. As one scholar says, your internal condition becomes an external practice. These are hard words, but this is what the scripture has for us today. So brothers and sisters, are you exhausted by the civil war that you see among Christians? Well, James is clear. He says the first place that we look to need to diagnose this issue, this civil war, is within our own hearts. Because public problems have private causes. And the problem with the world is the self-pleasing heart. And we're not just at war with one another. Unfortunately, we have to go down a little bit further before we start climbing back up. We're also, or James also uses strong language to describe the rift that we experience between us and God himself. He says in verse 4, you adulterous people. Now, all throughout the Bible, the Bible doesn't blush when it describes our relationship to God as a passionate marriage. Throughout the scriptures, the Lord is described as a passionate young man who is pursuing and wooing a bride for himself. And we, the church, the redeemed people of God, are that bride. In Christ, we are invited into that fullest, richest, and most intimate union with God himself. But when we seek the things of this world, when our passions drive us to the things of this world, it's like we're turning our back on the Lord himself. Now, to be clear, I don't believe that James in this situation is talking about losing your salvation. I don't think this is a salvation issue that he's describing. Because peace with God has already been secured through the blood of Christ at the cross. It was there, and we sang about it this morning. We were still rebels against God, but then Jesus Christ came into the world. He achieved peace, not because of anything that we've done, but because God desired it so. He was wooing us. He was pursuing us. He was winning us over to himself. Peace was declared, and peace will never be undeclared. 
However, we can forget. We can be like an adulterous spouse. We can forget. We can forget our first love and we can, cha- we can chase after false companions. We can look to the false companions of this world of material wealth, of esteemed reputation, of the idol of perfect health, the narcissistic uh, fascination of our own image. These all can be our downfall. These are all several things that can seduce the human heart. So we are at war with one another. We can be at war with God. But what is the plan for peace? What is that plan for reconciliation that God has for us? Where do we find hope for our wayward wayward hearts? Well, there in the third section, we see God's plan for peace. In verse 6, James writes, but God gives more grace. But God gives more grace. What hope, what relief, right? Like, what joy is this? That we are not left alone in our warring factions with one another, but God actually equips us with his grace to overcome this. In the original word, the word, or in the original language, the word for grace is charis. A couple of us have named children charis. It's a beautiful, beautiful word. And charis means a free gift. From the English language, we derive the word charm from this. But it also means something that is pleasing, something's beautiful, a gracious act of goodness from which we get the word charity. But it also means something that's invigorating, something that's, that's empowering, something that's rejuvenating and exciting from which we get the English words charisma or charismatic. And the biblical word for grace is all of these things combined. It fills you up. It empowers you. It, is so, it empowers you to do something impossible. It is something that is good and beautiful and pleasing and exciting. And best of all, it is something that is completely and utterly free that God gives us. And it's more. It's more is what the scripture says. He gives more grace. In other words, the grace of God is never lacking. There's always more. And then there's more to come. So whatever you may have given up, whatever, uh, whatever you have given up because of your pursuits of self and the, and the bent desires of our heart, you can't give up your salvation because God gives up more grace. We may wage war against one another and war against God himself, but yet God gives more grace. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limits because he gives more grace. Doesn't this sound like irrational to you? Because that's not how human beings behave. You know, we behave in this culture where one and done and you're, or one error and you're done, one strike and you're out, right? But that's not true with God. His grace is more. And as a sign of his grace, as an outpouring of his grace, as as a expression of his grace, He gives us a plan for peace, which we read about this morning. For those who humble themselves, for those who open their hands to receive the grace of God, he shows us a path upward. So we could have an entire sermon just preached on the actions of this third paragraph. And that would be really exciting. I would love to do that. But I want to move pretty quickly through this. I'm going to kind of blitz through that through this. I hope that's okay. But the first thing that we read is that we are to submit to God. 
Now, in our modern vernacular, we think submit is just kind of like laying down on the floor and being like, have your way with me. But no, submission is a term of enlistment. It's like uh, an openness to receive and follow the directives of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submission means that we are enlisting in the army of the Lord. Second, we are to resist the devil. And I love the promise that comes with this. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So we understand that in submitting to God, that means that we're coming under the attacks of the evil one. And to resist the devil, though, as brothers and sisters, is to turn your back on him. Thirdly, we are to draw near to God. That is an intentional action in which we take. Sometimes we expect God to first draw near to us. Sometimes we wonder, God, why, why won't you manifest yourself to me? Why won't you speak to me? But we look at our own habits, and we haven't been taking the time to dive into his word, to draw near to him, to pray to him, to, to seek his counsel and the fellowship of other believers. Well, the Bible's very clear. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And then fourthly, purify your lives. In other words, we're to strive for lives of goodness and beauty, of righteousness. Not just the outer lives of cleansing our hands, that is, deliberate sins of rebellion, but also the inner lives of our hearts, sins that are not observable to one another, but things that God is aware of. We are supposed to purify our lives. And then finally, we are to lament our sin and repent of it. It is a grace of God that he allows us to discover what these stones of sin are in our heart because he wants us to radiate and shine with his beauty. And so he wants us to lament of that sin and to turn from it. Now, some of you might be thinking here, man, this is super glib. Like this, these, this passage, it, it seems like something that probably belongs in Lent, um, maybe not so much something here in ordinary time. Like this is such a, a kind of a downer, right? This is the word of God. And maybe you're sitting there thinking like, Rick, I thought this was going to be a, a message about grace. Like doesn't God want us to be joyful? Yes, God does want us to be joyful, but the road to joy is not the same road as the road to self-satisfied happiness. True joy only comes when we have true freedom, and empowered by the limitless grace of God, we are able, brothers and sisters, to rise above our worldly, carnal cravings. St. Augustine says, the heart is restless until it rests in God. The heart is restless until it rests in God. Are you restless this morning? What is your heart yearning for? What do you want? Do you strive after wealth and riches, hoping that these comforts would distract you from the pain of the world? Do you pursue perfect health of body wishing that your strength would somehow stave off death itself? Do you look for the approval of others, thinking that that will somehow cover up the shame that you feel in your life? Well, Jesus Christ is saying to you today, draw near to me. Draw near to me. Do not place your hopes, your wishes, and your desires on the things of this world, but come to me, is what Jesus Christ says. This passage ends with a promise. It says, humble yourselves, and he will exalt you. 
that one verse summarizes everything that we've been talking about today. Humble yourselves, and he will exalt you. Jesus Christ is the one who humbled himself more than anyone. He was in heaven, in the throne rooms of heaven, and he humbled himself to dwell with us. And now, after atoning for our sin, he has ascended into the heavenlies. It's the same word used throughout the New Testament that James is using now when he says that we will be exalted. The warring will cease. The battles of sin will be over. And God will rise us up to dwell with him forever. Alleluia, alleluia. So one way that we get to experience this every single week at Restoration and, and um, especially today is by coming to the Lord's table. And so in a few moments, we're going to celebrate Holy Communion with one another. I'm going to invite you to rise and to draw near and receive from the Lord Jesus Christ today. And may your coming forward as you stand in your seats and as you walk forward, may that be an embodied prayer that everyone participates in today. May you be saying through your steps, Lord, I am drawing near to you. So draw near to me. And as you open your hands, may you say, Lord, I am submitting myself to you. May you please give of yourself to me. And I don't know how the Lord's going to answer that. It might come with emotions. It might come with um, all sorts of emotions, actually. It might come with no emotions at all. I, I don't know. The Holy Spirit's mysterious, and I don't know the particulars of what's going on in your heart. But, I, but our Lord Jesus does. And so maybe there's something that you're bringing with you today that you want from God. Again, bring that with you as you come forward today. I don't know how he will answer your prayer, but I do know that he always gives more grace. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, our hearts, my heart is restless until it rests in you. So, Lord, I confess to you the things that I pursue that are not of you, that are not um, towards my own righteousness and sanctification. They're not, they're not things that help me live a good and pleasing life. So, Lord, please do remove those things from me. Lord, I pray today that as your gathered people of God come and draw near to you, that you may draw near to us. May you heal us, Lord, that we might be a community that celebrates the goodness of who you are. You are the exalted one from whom every blessing flows. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.